morning, church. This morning, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 16, so uh, I invite you to turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to make use of the ones under the seats in front of you. We're going to be looking at a long passage today, so I recommend following along with your own copy of the text. You can find the passage on page 215 of uh, the Pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, we invite you to take one of these Pew Bibles home with you. Uh, You can consider it a gift from our church to you so that you can study it throughout the week. Uh, And if you'd like someone to help explain the Bible to you, please ask one of our members. We would love to help explain the Scripture story of Jesus Christ to you. So Judges chapter 16, I'll read the whole passage and then I will pray. Samson went to Gaza... And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah came to Sam- said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come again, for he has told me all his heart. 
Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground out the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. And the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are continually with us. You hold our right hand. You guide us with your counsel, and afterward you will receive us to glory. Whom do we have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Teach us by your Spirit this morning as we open your word, and help us to look to you and to Christ and him crucified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I confess that I don't have much of an introduction to my sermon this morning, and part of the reason for this is because as I was thinking of other famous stories and characters that might bear some resemblance or similarities to Samson and his shaved head, whether it's Superman and his kryptonite or Achilles and his heel, I realized that I would inevitably be alluding to a story that is lamer, less interesting, and less fascinating than the one that we are studying this morning. So I figured that this story alone serves as its own hook and really needs no introduction. But more than this, it's a story, uh, excuse me, it is a story, to borrow a line from the grandfather from The Princess Bride, that is full of fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. More than this, it's a story about God and his faithfulness to his rebellious people. It's about a God who sets apart and restores, who creates and recreates, who subverts our desires and expectations, but fulfills them beyond our imagination. 
It's a story that reminds us of the consecrated and set-apart representative of God's people, who was disciplined and cut off so that we might be delivered and sanctified to his service. And it's a story that demonstrates to us that Yahweh is the strength of his people. So we will look at this today in three points. Point number one, a consecrated man and a consecrated people. Point number two, this will be our second and longest point, descent into folly. And point number three, the disciplined deliverer. So look at point number one, a consecrated man and a consecrated people. We can't rightly analyze the life and death of Samson if we do not first remind ourselves of his identity, his status, and his mission. As Tim shared with us last week, Samson was set apart to begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But more than this, he was specially called to be set apart and consecrated to the Lord for his service. And the specific kind of separation that Samson was called to was that of a Nazarite. Those who were under a Nazarite vow were held to a standard above and beyond that of those around them. As number six tells us, they were to abstain from strong drink, to refrain from touching a dead body, even those of close relatives, and to refrain from cutting their hair throughout the entire duration of of their vow because number six, seven, the Nazarite's separation to God was on his head. It marked a special kind of devotion to the Lord, a kind of devotion supremely committed to holiness and purity of life, the kind of life that was clearly different and distinct from the surrounding world. And it's this kind of devotion that was meant to characterize the entirety of Samson's life. It was from the womb to the tomb that he is set apart to the Lord in this special way. Yet Judges 14 through 16 seems to present the life of this Nazarite as a series of one instance after another of violating the terms of his separation. He kills a lion and eats honey from its corpse in 14, 14, 5 through 9. He takes the fresh jawbone of a donkey, the piece of a corpse, to kill a thousand men. And he's recorded on three occasions pursuing in marriage or sleeping with women from the pagan Philistines. In other words, Samson, by his actions, treats treats his special calling and his unique consecration with contempt. Set apart by God to live in the service of God, he instead essentially pursues chapter 14, verses 3 and 7, whatever is right in his own eyes. But we also cannot miss the larger commentary the author of Judges is making here through this story. The writer of the book is telling a true story about a real man named Samson who did real, incredible things. But he's also telling a story about the nation of Israel through Samson. Up to this point in Judges, we have been tracing the story of God's consecrated and set-apart nation as they live their new life in the land where they're supposed to live according to the standards of their calling. And if you've been with us for any length of time during the series, you're familiar with the plotline that the nation undergoes moral and spiritual degradation. And one of the ways this reality is depicted is through the moral and spiritual degradation of the judges as representative of the nation as a whole. Now, in our day as Americans, we like to put some distance between ourselves and our leaders from a moral standpoint. We can say, I cast my vote for the other candidate. The one we have in charge now doesn't represent me. But this isn't so in the book of Judges. The individual actions and attitudes of the judge who is leading Israel can be said to be indicative of the nation corporately. The author uses individual stories of the nation's leaders to help tell the story of the nation 
as a whole. So for the story at hand, notice the overlap between Samson's calling and Israel's. Samson is called to be set apart to the Lord. He's called to be uh, used for God's redemptive purposes. And for this reason, he's to be consecrated, holy, undefiled, distinct, and separate from those around him. Those around him are supposed to look at him and see a man who is devoted to Yahweh's service. And this is the sort of standing that Israel is meant to have among the nations. They're referred to as God's son, his servant, a people for his own possession, also to be used for his redemptive purposes. The nation is given the law to be consecrated, set apart, undefiled by and a light to the surrounding idolatrous nations. They are the holy and separate people in whose midst God dwells. But our story here in Judges depicts the way this consecration is defiled and treated with contempt. Samson, like Israel, doesn't stand apart as holy and distinct from the world around him, devoted to the service of the Lord and the enjoyments of his presence, but rather becomes like the nations themselves. In fact, the story of Samson, the last judge, shows that he is literally in bed with them. And so the story helps demonstrate the canonization of Israel, or the fact that rather than being separate from and alike to the nations, rather than proclaiming the glory of Yahweh who dwelled in their midst, and rather than being a blessing to the nations around them, God's holy and chosen people instead gradually become more and more like them. And less and less did they resemble the royal priesthood, whom the creator of heaven and earth had led out of the land of Egypt, set apart, strengthened, and dwelled amongst, had called them to be. So as we trace out Samson's story, holding the back of your mind Israel's story, called and set apart by God, given the land and God's presence. Remember their unfaithfulness, their discipline, but ultimately remember God's promise to send a deliverer. And so church, let me also pause here to say, uh, let this be a reminder to re-examine our own calling. Like Samson, like Israel, we too have been called set apart and consecrated to the Lord. We've been set apart in Christ not only for the forgiveness of sins, but so that, 1 Peter 2.24, we might die to sins and live to righteousness. We're ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, set apart as a kingdom of priests to reflect and proclaim the glory of God and the reign of Christ. So this means that we are to represent the one who called us rather than the fallen, evil, and at times hostile, unbelieving world. This is a high calling. It's a, it's a daunting calling. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's an unattractive one at times. But consider the glory and the privilege of it. We're the body of Christ, his new creation by the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the triune God, the one through whom he is present with creation. We're the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It's the highest privilege to be enlisted for the service of the kingdom, to be set apart for the service of God, and to reflect his glory to the world around us. We cannot truly bless the world around us when we begin to look like the world around us. And so let us just ask ourselves, both, both individually and together as a church, what story are we living out? Did the contours of our lives follow the contours of the cross? If a world who desires wisdom and brilliance were to look at us and observe every moment of our lives, 
where would it say our wisdom is found? If outsiders that seek pleasure were to look at us, where would they say our pleasure is found? If a suffering world that longs for happiness were to observe the way we suffer, would they see us doing so humbly, continuing to serve others, rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn? When they see us grieving, would they know that it is not as those who have no hope? If they wondered and sought where our strength lay, what would they find? The call of the consecrated is a subversive one. It's a cruciform one. Yet it's a glorious calling, a calling that is worth fighting to follow. And this brings us to our second and our longest point, failure through folly. Samson's life in Judges chapters 14 through 16 is marked by sensuality, by recklessness, and by sheer lack of regard for the calling that is bestowed upon him. In our passage today, we can take note of five acts of folly, at least, by Samson, each of which puts himself in jeopardy. First, in verses 1 through 3, we have the ordeal in Gaza. We have in this mini-story another instance of Samson seeing something he wants and taking it. The story also entails uh, the second instance of him pursuing and attaining a woman of the Philistines. He gives no second thought to the sexual morality he's called to as a member of God's chosen people, let alone to the demand that he keep his relations confined to his own covenant people rather than members of idolatrous nations. And notice also the folly of these actions. He descends deep into the territory of the enemy where they, give, where they are given the opportunity to surround and capture him. Were it not for his extraordinary strength, he would easily fall into the enemy's hand. And to that end, we see his gift of strength that comes in handy in this moment, not to act as a deliverer for the purposes for which he was called, but as a means to safely further his own licentious lifestyle. He views his strength not for advancing God's purposes, but his own desires. And this is the first of several instances in this chapter where we see Samson, motivated by his sinful passions, flirts with the enemy while relying on his strength to keep himself out of their grasp. So this brings us to his affair with Delilah. Now Delilah lives on the border between the Philistine territory and the tribe of Dan, and the text doesn't uh, tell us for sure whether or not she is a Philistine, uh, but narratival consistency, Delilah's close interactions with the Philistine rulers lead me to believe that she was a Philistine woman. But in any case, the text gives us no clear reasons to view Samson's affair with her as anything other than foolish and, sim- and sinful. It's an extramarital affair in which he wittingly puts himself within reach of the enemy. Out of the desire to fulfill his own sensual passions, he treats his calling and consecration with contempt as the enemy seeks to take advantage by paying Delilah a vast sum of money to betray him into their hands. So in the interaction between Samson and Delilah, uh, the first instance of Samson spurning his calling occurs in the first time he tricks Delilah. The seven fresh bowstrings, which he declares to be essentially his kryptonite, would have been made from the tendons of of an animal. And because of their freshness, Samson touching them would have been seen as the equivalent of touching a corpse. So when he's bound by these bowstrings, he's in clear violation of his Nazarite vow. The layers to Samson's corruption just continue to grow. 
He commits acts of immorality with a woman who is not a member of his covenant people, but instead worships idols. Not only this, but the strength he is given by virtue of his separation, of his special calling, and of being set apart, is wielded not to defeat the enemy and bring rest to the land, but to get himself out of sticky situations brought about by his immorality. His strength is used to allow him to continue to indulge in this rebellious behavior. His consecration to God is inverted into disobedience to God. But friends, far be it from us to read this without heeding the warning. May we not read this story thinking that spurning and treating our own calling with contempt is something that's beyond us. Do we, whether in thought or in practice, consider our rebirth as a simple forgiveness of sins so that we don't have to go to hell when we die? Or do we see our salvation as being united to Christ, as being made completely new in him, as being transformed from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light so that we can do nothing other than live in service to him? Or perhaps we are prone to adhere to Christianity as a a set of ideas or an intellectual worldview that is expedient to our previously held beliefs rather than as an all-encompassing transformation of our whole person deployed for the service of his kingdom. In other words, is our faith, whether consciously or not, a convenience for us? Do we enjoy grace but not putting sin to death? Do we love ideas but not people? Or are we, as those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, compelled to expend every breath for his service? And let me just say here that in my two years at the church, I have been beyond encouraged to see so many of you love and earnestly seek to fulfill your calling, even as you face inconvenience, difficulty, and even hardship. The hospitality that you've shown to me and to others, the texts and calls that I've received offering prayers on a regular basis, the amount of service that so many of you have offered to me and to others, your desire to see unbelievers come to faith in Christ, your willingness to step up when the church needs it, Your prayers and your support for those who are burdened have convicted me of my own lack of heavenly-mindedness, my own lack of being kingdom-driven. Being here has made me desire to pursue kingdom work even more fervently. Yet I also know that we are far from a perfect church. I know that being the sinners that we are still find a disconnect between our calling and consecration to the Lord and the way that we live our lives. So let me just invite us all to building this church from the inside out so that Christ is proclaimed in word and deed, both within these walls and beyond. If you're a member here and would like to know where you can start in helping us uh, build this church, uh, let me encourage you that a good place that you can begin is just by simply praying through your directory. You can see Melissa, uh, for those of you who do not have your directory yet. And as you pray through your directory, as you do this, text and call those that you're praying for to see how you can come alongside them and support them. Invite people to share in your life where you can confess sins and struggles, joys and sorrows. Be a blessing by serving others and be a blessing by allowing them to serve you. If you'd like to serve here at this church, we have new cards that have our deacons' information at the Connection Center through the tunnel and to the left. They can get you involved in areas that our church has a need. And if you'd like to be involved in community outreach, we have outreach cards also at the Connection Center 
that can help connect you with members involved with organizations that provide service and gospel work in our community. We are a people who have been called and set apart to God's service. Now, this doesn't simply entail a change in our title or our tribe, but a changed life for the advance of the kingdom. So I invite you to join us and hold, and hold us to this kingdom work. Now, we might expect that after fooling Delilah once and seeing her duplicity and attempting to betray Samson, that he might move on, that he'd refrain from indulging in with his sin and flirting with the enemy. Yet out of his love for pre- pleasure, for dangling his strength in front of Delilah and, of, and the Philistines, or whatever it may be, he persists. Twice more he fools his lover, and twice more he escapes from his bonds at the hand of his enemies. But Samson is not the only one who is persistent. Day in and day out, Delilah nags him, begging him to reveal his secret and accusing him of not loving her, of his heart not truly being with her. We should also note that this is not the first time one of Samson's lovers has used this tactic. In Judges 14, his Philistine wife employs a very similar method to allow her people to gain the upper hand on him. But Samson, who has not exactly proven to be one to learn from his past mistakes, succumbs to Delilah's convincing words and gives his secret away. And just like that, a lifetime of invincibility, of physical dominance, of unprecedented power comes to an end. After so many failures, so many foolish acts, years of a cavalier, devil-may-care attitude where his physical strength would bail him out of any sticky situation and all of a sudden one slip-up costs him everything. So I want to make note of three specific things pertaining to Samson's downfall. His response, his heart, and his strength. So if you're taking notes, these are three sub-points all under point number two. So notice first his response in the middle of his failure. Look at verse 20. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Samson reveals here that he had always viewed himself impervious to the assault of the enemy. It was never a big deal when in his sin he would flirt with the enemy because he could always rely on his strength to shake them away. And time after time he was right. But the more and more he indulged, the closer and closer to the edge he crept. And the further down this path he walked, the more and more he approached the point of no return. At last year, he had taken that last step that would be his undoing. And notice that his downfall is not the result of a single catastrophic mistake that happens out of nowhere. Rather, it comes after a series of foolish actions, one after another after another where each time he told himself he would be able to manage the fallout. He inches closer and closer to danger. He plays with it, toys with it, flirts with it, attempts to get as much of his sin as he can and tries to manage it. But finally there came a time when his sin turned the tables on him. And so here we see that sin is, uh, is something that cannot be something that we manage or control. It's something that manages, controls, and enslaves us. We can't fool ourselves. We can't think that we can dabble here and there, that we can walk by it and take a look or rationalize it away and think that we will be able to stay outside of its clutches. 
we may be able to explain away one night of having a drink too many as a unique and strange event. Maybe we can explain away two, maybe three of those nights. Or perhaps just one instance of exploding on uh, your spouse or kids was simply a lapse in judgment. Maybe a second time doing it, you can write it off as just being tired. In In a third instance, you can chalk it up to being stressed from work. Or maybe recent usage of illicit internet content were all nothing more than unfortunate, isolated incidents caused by moments of weakness. But how many individual, isolated moments does it take until we are truly bound? Brothers and sisters, may we always be on guard against this mentality. Scripture makes urgently clear the danger of toying with sin, of walking too close to the edge, of allowing ourselves to be bound by it, and saying afterwards, I will break free as I had before. Proverbs 5 8 says, Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. By God's grace, may this be the posture that characterizes our behavior and our stance towards our sin. But fleeing sin requires more than simply the legalistic desire to refrain from doing bad things. We're in need of hearts that are enthralled for the glory of God. So this is point, sub-point number two uh, regarding Samson's downfall, his heart. Look at verses 15, 17, and 18. In verse 15, Delilah questions Samson's love for her, since his heart is not with her. To prove her otherwise, in verse 17, he tells her all his heart. And in 18, Delilah knows for a fact that he has told her all his heart. And she tells the Philistine leaders that he has told her all his heart. So here we see an essential component, component not only of Samson's sin, but of every act of disobedience. Here he has given his heart over to something other than his creator that he was set apart for. In the way that he responds to Delilah's prodding, he revealed where his heart truly lay. And it was not with God, but with the desires of his flesh. Church, may we indeed be marked by hearts that are averse to sin. But But may we more so be marked by hearts that are held captive to Christ. And so may sin be a delight to shed. May the pain of cutting it off be pleasant to us, all for the sake of knowing him more deeply. If you're here and you, if you have, and if you're a Christian and you have this desire to have this heart for Christ, to be overwhelmed by his glory but feel like all you can do in your Christian walk is just go through the motions, please know that I understand you. But let me also encourage you by saying that the best thing that you can do, even if it feels as if you are simply going through the motions, is to keep turning to the cross of Christ. Surround yourself with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Continue to sing and pray and sit under the word with us. Let me also suggest praying through and meditating on the Psalms and to feel the deep emotions being poured out to and for the Lord. This week I was reminded of and greatly helped by Psalm 27 verse 4. And if you'd like a spoiler alert for the very thing that we as the people of God have ultimately be set apart for, hear this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
May this be our prayer. May this be our heart's desire. And may this be the joy that we chase after. Because our battle against the devil's schemes requires more than simply the desire to maintain good behavior. Whether to gain the praise of others or to boast in our own righteousness. It requires a heart that is moved by a deep desire for the glory of Christ. But ultimately, for this end, we are still in need of one more thing. So take a look at this third note on the downfall of Samson. This third subpoint, his strength. Compare verse 19, where we learn that Samson's strength had left him, with verse 20. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And so here we see what, or rather who, Samson's true strength was. It wasn't simply in the fact that uh, he had long hair, but that the Lord was with him. We see many of the times before Samson displays an astounding feat of strength, the Spirit of the Lord sees him. See 13, 25, 14, 6, 14, 19, and 15, 14. It was God who had blessed him. Yahweh was his strength. So it wasn't as if a pair of scissors was the equivalent of kryptonite for him. Rather, it was having cut off the sign of his consecration and separation to the Lord, the blessing and strength of the Lord was cut off from him. Up to this point, Samson had depended upon himself and the strength that he had known all his life. But verse 20 down through the end of the narrative says that it was God who was his strength. It's God who leaves Samson helpless when he's captured. And it's God who strengthens him one last time to defeat the enemy. But this story communicates that Yahweh is more than just the source of supernatural strength for one special man. He is the hope and the strength for his people as a whole. Notice the location of the final defeat over the Philistines in verse 23. The Philistines are gathered for a worship ceremony where they're sacrificing to Dagon their God. And so it seems reasonable uh, to therefore expect that the house that's brought down, killing the leaders and all in attendance, is a temple for this God. So in one fell swoop, the Lord demonstrates not only that he is he might, mighty enough to give Samson the help he needs, he also demonstrates to his people that he, their God, the God of Israel, is sovereign over all things, including the worthless idol their oppressors turn to for their strength. It is the clear and resounding reminder that he is their strength and their hope, not the false gods of the nations and detestable practices that they turn to in their rebellion. God is the strength of his people, and God is their deliverer. And so that brings us to our third and final point, the disciplined deliverer. So Samson, once the mighty, unstoppable force and the bane of the Philistines' existence, the one who had slaughtered them and taunted them over it, was now helpless and humiliated at their hands. In a twist of irony, his eyes are plucked out, suggesting, as some have pointed out, that he is no longer able to do what is right in his own eyes. And at this point, you might look at the story and lament a wasted life. His mighty strength was a gift that could have been used for the good of the people of Israel. He could have led them with authority and confidence. His own consecration and separateness could have reminded the nation of their own duty and calling. Yet in the end, it was put to use for his own selfish, 
hedonistic pursuits. But at the same time, we might also question whether God is good on his promises. Does he not say in chapter 13, verse 5, that Samson would be used to begin to save his people from their oppressors? What has become of this promise? But here we are given an image of God's providence and action. We see that he does not merely work out his plan of deliverance in spite of the imperfections of his chosen servant. Rather, he works them out in and through them. In chapter, verse, in chapter 14, verse 4, when Samson's parents are concerned about him seeking a wife amongst the Philistines, we see that it is through these actions that God is seeking an opportunity against the enemy of his people. God doesn't implement plan B when Samson is paraded and mocked in front of a packed house of Philistines. No, God works by the disobedient actions of his servant to bring about a victory for his people. Samson means it for evil. Notice that when he asks God to be strengthened one last time, the only thing that's on his mind is revenge for the evil that's done to him. Now, this isn't to override the fact that he does, in some sense, return to God into faith, a fact confirmed by Hebrews 11. But even in his most, most faithful act, Samson is pursuing his own agenda. So what he intends for his own purposes, for his own glory, God intends for good. To make his name known among Israel and the nations. Who else can be praised as the deliverer when it's through the absolute weakness and humiliation of the nation's leader that victory is achieved? Who else could have brought redemption from the situation and then God alone? Even in the face of having his holy name dragged through the mud, he still acts. So what else can we say than that God is indeed faithful to his promises? I have to say that my favorite verse in this story is verse 22. So if you look with me there, starting in verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. In a brilliant piece of storytelling, when it seems like all has been lost, when it seems Samson has completely ruined his life and leadership, when it seems like God had abandoned him to his own demise at the hands of the Philistines, we get this subtle hint, this clever piece of foreshadowing, assuring us that the Lord is not done with his chosen servant. Samson may be cut off here from God's divine favor, but from the place of destitution, from the place of discipline, the fruits of deliverance will come. And does not the story of Israel tell us something similar? Don't also God's chosen people, called, set apart, consecrated as a holy nation, rebel against their God, violate the covenant, defile themselves with the gods and practices of the nations, and not unlike Samson, commit a sort of spiritual adultery with them, and as a result, they're cut off from the land, from God's divine favor. It isn't it from this very stump of the tree that was laid low by the axe, by the discipline of God, that the shoot of Jesse would spring forth for deliverance? In this shoot of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Father from eternity past, humbled himself and took on our likeness. Though he knew no sin, he became sin, bearing our transgressions, our rebellion and disobedience. 
And for this reason, he too was disciplined on our behalf, cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah 53, 8. And from the cross, bearing the wrath of God, he recited those agonizing words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Humiliated, mocked, taunted, and scorned by the enemy. In this discipline, on our behalf, Jesus Christ delivered his people from their bondage to sin. And giving his life for her, and in being raised from the dead, and in ascending to his throne and pouring out his spirit, he recreated her, consecrated her, and sanctified her, presenting her without spot or wrinkle, Ephesians 5, 27, such that all who come to him in repentance and faith might not perish, but receive eternal life and enjoy the sweet communion and fellowship with God, to dwell with him forever as we were made to. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me invite you to turn to him today. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Turn to him and give your life to him as Lord of your life, and you will be saved. Maybe today you feel as if you don't have your life in order enough to come to him. Maybe today you feel as if uh, uh, you need to get your act together before you can come to Christ in faith. But friend, if God can remember Samson after a lifetime of disobedience, this is proof that there is none too far out of his reach that turns to him in faith. Don't wait until you have fixed yourself up, because only the blood of Jesus can do that. Rather, turn to Christ and allow him to forgive you, cleanse you, and present you blameless. Perhaps today you are here and you are a Christian, but perhaps you have not been living according to your calling But let this story of how God remembered Samson despite his disobedience remind you that he will always welcome his children back with open arms, the same way the father did the prodigal son. It's never too late to return to your heavenly father in Christ Jesus. So if this is you today, let me encourage you to find a trusted friend to ask for prayer, to ask for Christian exhortation, and to ask for the reminder of the gloriousness of your calling. Church, we are a people who have been consecrated and set apart by God in Christ to enjoy and proclaim his glory. Let us remember his work for us. Turn our hearts afresh to him today and be reminded that the Lord is our strength. Let's pray. Father, you are our strength and our heart's deepest delight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our failure, and in spite of our inability to live according to our calling. Continue to sanctify us. Continue to renew our hearts so that they desire nothing other than to see your glory and to dwell with you. In Jesus' name, amen.